Welcome back to Is It Horror? This is Season 2, Episode 5, The Black Cauldron. I'm Brianna. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. I'm Mitz. And I am Steve. If you haven't joined us before, each episode we analyze a piece of media, usually a movie, whose horror status is debatable. We look at the creator's intent, audience reception, and the content of the media, all in an effort to better define the horror genre. If you agree with our take, awesome. If you don't, that's awesome too. Horror is a diverse genre and all are welcome. And before we get into the film, we will go to Joe's Get to Know You Corner. Joe? Welcome to the corner. So we're going to be talking about children's horror and like if that's a little different than normal horror and all that type of thing. And it kind of got me thinking about like some like scary moments in movies that aren't are definitely not horror. Um, so I guess my question is, uh, what moment in a for sure non-horror movie scared you? Um, this was a hard one because there's a couple different things. But the first thing that came to mind was, does anybody remember All Dogs Go to Heaven? I'm pretty sure it was Don yeah. Bluth. Yes, okay. I remember. The bad dream that Charlie, the main dog, has where he's been a very terrible bad dog and basically like the dog devil comes to get him and it's sailing across this molten lava fires of hell thing like a like deconstructed Viking ship. That scared the shit out of me as a kid. Like I can I still can see it in my mind's eye. That was probably the scariest part in a kid's movie that I can remember. That's a really good one, and I had forgotten about it. Thanks for uh, bringing up some recurring nightmares for, for me. No problem. I do what I can. <laughs> uh, the one that I thought of uh, that kind of stuck with, with me for a long time was E.T. And, like, the moment that, like, Elliot's sitting in the lawn chair and, like, there's something in the shed and he knows it's there, but, like... And but like kind of drifts off to sleep, and then like ET's there, like backlit, and he doesn't know what it is. And it starts, and ET starts like waddling towards him in jerky, quick motions, and then stopping and getting closer and closer and closer. And uh, that moment scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. Uh, I had to like look up some ones because I was thinking we we did like sort of a similar question in the past about like films that had we were a little bit scared of but i was trying to think of something different than that and this one was um in who framed roger rabbit there's like that part with judge doom is like really was like really creepy to me when i was a kid <laughs> who's who was judge doom again so is that the guy who put the put the stuff in the in the like acid he put the shoe in the dip. Oh, yeah, the shoe! Yeah. The shoe in the acid. That that was scary. As yeah, child. that guy. Yep, that was scary. I have two of them. One doesn't make any sense. It was you had to be there moment. Um, so the first time I was ever traumatized by a movie was um Home Alone. No, not Home Alone. What's the other Christmas movie? A Christmas Christmas Story. Yeah, where he puts his tongue on the metal and it gets stuck little kid puts his tongue on the metal and gets stuck that scared me i don't know why i bawled at that part i thought he was gonna die <laughs> so but then i went outside and tried it 
Um, an actually to. scary one that I remember distinctly because I, I was like terrified to go outside for days. Was not in a movie. It was actually a t- TV show. It was The Simpsons. It was the episode where Mr. Burns comes as an alien. And I, I looked it up, up earlier today. It's still terrifying. You got you got to look it up on YouTube if you haven't seen it. It's terrifying. Did that one that really terrifies you? That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> Did you even look it up? He it's brings scary. you love and peace. Oh my god, the voice though. <laughs> it brings us peace. Kill it. It's Mr. Burns. Kill it. <laughs> I tried really thinking about this too, as far as movies go, and I didn't really come up with a good one from a movie. But the one that I did think of that's always stuck with me is um. There is the two-part episode of the TV show Punky Brewster, which was normally just supposed to be like, here's a quirky little kid and her friends. But there was a two-part episode called The Perils of Punky where they go into, like, they get lost into a cave. And it's kind of like a nightmare that she has. It's not actually something that happens, but they're like, I only have vague memories of it. It's been a while since I've watched it, but there's, like, kids' faces stuck in the rocks and, like, giant spiders and stuff like that. And would have come out when I was pretty young, so it would have been like, oh, yeah, this is a normal family show you can watch, and then, oh, there's this terrifying stuff that wouldn't have been suitable for kids. So I guess that's always one that comes to my mind is, you know, something that, something scary that was on a non-horror TV show, at least. Cool. I don't know. I think it's interesting, some of the, especially talking about children's stuff, how, like, they kind of, even in stuff that's definitely not horror, kind of sneak some scary stuff into some things. So it's really interesting to me. Because not a good kid story if someone's not crying about it. That's what that's the real story right there. <laughs> it's children's entertainment. Someone's got to cry. Well, sure, yeah. I assume that's the goal of all children's entertainment is can you make the kids cry, really? That's, that's the point, obviously. <laughs> I make sure my kids cry every day. That's because you're a good dad. All right. Well, before we get into the film, just to kind of, if you're following along with the first annual Is It Horror Marathon, uh, this is the end of week five, which was Joe Ruins Your Childhood Week. So it was all horror movies that... uh, are geared towards kids and, you know, their horror status is honestly all debatable throughout this week, but uh, hopefully it's fun, brought back some childhood memories, at least ones you could watch with the kids. And then, uh, so hopefully that's been a fun one to watch. As has said, normally with each of these episodes, we're recording ahead of time, so we haven't watched through those yet ourselves. Uh, I'm sure we've seen at least a few of them, all of us have, but uh, anyway, hopefully you're enjoying it. And uh, then we'll head on to talk about the movie. I'm sure I'll be enjoying it. Yeah, it's probably going to work pretty well for you at home, I would think. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so, yeah, today we're talking about The Black Cauldron from 1985. Uh, It was based on the five-volume book series, The Chronicles of Perdane, by Lloyd Alexander. The movie was primarily adapted from volume one, uh, which was the book of the book of three and volume two, which was called the Black Cauldron as well. The directors uh, directors uh, were Ted Berman and Richard Rich. Ted Berman was a writer for The Rescuers and The Fox and the Hound, 
and directed The Fox and the Hound, along with Ted Berman and Art Stevens. I guess it helped him with that one. He was did the animation on 101 Dalmatians. And then for Richard Rich, he was a writer-director for The Swan Princess. When I th- saw that and thought about it, I think there's some elements there. There's some, I mean, there was the Rothbart and the Great Animal um, were c- pretty creepy as a kid too. But anyways, I digress. And then he directed the eight of the sequels and wrote four of the sequels, which I've never seen any of those sequels, so who knows about those. But anyways, there were a lot of writers, uh, Ted Berman, Vance Gary, Joe Hale, David Jonas, Roy Morita, uh, Richard Rich, Art Stevens, Al Wilson, and Peter Young. So that's kind of crazy. Vance Gary worked primarily as a storyboard artist. Uh, He also did uh, 101 Dalmatians, The Sword in the Stone, The Jungle Book, The uh, Aristocats, The Rescuers, and Lion King. Uh, Art Stevens, uh, an animator, director, producer, uh, and he also uh, directed the, the rescuers. I'll jump in for a second just on this to say that it's kind of interesting looking at least through the creative process on a lot of these Disney films that um, you have usually multiple directors, multiple writers, and then a lot of the times you don't necessarily have a writer credit, you have a story credit because basically they have the animators kind of go through and do like the the mighty marvel method of uh writing where they have a story idea it's handed to some animators they basically put together a storyboard of what it's all going to end up being and then a lot of those animators end up getting writers or story credits on the film so you end up with all these writers because they're all the ones that are putting basically the storyboard together um, so I don't know, it's kind of interesting just seeing like how many people end up being involved with these on those traditional titles and films in the background. Anyway, I just thought I'd interject to throw that out there because, uh, that's why you have just so many names on this. Yeah, I think that's, it's crazy. It's very, a really interesting process. Um, but yeah, anyways. The back of the box description for this is in the mystical land of Perdane. Uh, Taran, a young boy who dreams of a future as an invincible warrior, finds himself leading a real-life quest in a race against the evil Horned King. Taran must be the first to find the mysterious Black Cauldron, or the Horned King will unleash its power and take over the world. With the help of a magical sword and enchant and uh, and enchanting princess, an adorable clairvoyant pig and a furry little creature named Gurgi. Uh, Taran overcomes winged dragons, uh, the king's monstrous henchmen, three batty witches, and more, and learns nothing is a p- as powerful as courage and friendship. So there you have it. They don't mention the mis- minstrel guy on the back of the box. That's interesting. Because he's a bitch and he doesn't matter. No, yeah, that's true. Well, that's not very nice. <laughs> On the contrary, he really, he drives a hard bargain with those witches at the end. He was a pivotal character. That's, that's true. Yeah, it's just being mean. He's fine. Every good party needs a bard. True story. (laughs) And that's why everyone likes karaoke so much. It's to bring that spirit of the bard back. (laughs) 
Um, I guess looking at the intent side of it, um, there's a few things I had to say on it, at least with Lloyd Alexander. So he's the one that wrote the original Perdane Chronicles book series. Uh, he had a comment from an interview with Scholastic about the Disney film, or at least the Disney film was commented on during that interview, which he had to say, I have to say there is no resemblance between the movie and the book. Having said that, the movie is itself purely as a movie. I found to be very enjoyable. Uh, so that'll at least be somewhat interesting here in a sec with some of the comments. Uh, the other thing that it's worth noting is there is a very comprehensive article by Collider all about the troubled production that occurred with the Black Cauldron. Uh, I just kind of sum it up and simplify it. There was basically a war between the old guard animators and the new up-and-coming animators, and the Black Cauldron ended up as one of the battlegrounds. This is around the time that Michael Eisner and Frank Wells were hired as executives at Disney, and they had appointed Jeffrey Katzenberg to oversee the film toward the latter, toward the latter end of the production. And kind of as the Collider article puts it, he was pretty shocked with the tone of the film and required several cuts to try and lighten things up. And there were also, as mentioned before, three different uh, three different directors, I think it was, two different directors who all reportedly had different ideas about what the tone of the film ought to be. So it was pretty conflicted in that way. And uh, a lot of people, if you just even search The Black Cauldron, you'll be able to see this and it bears out, is uh, that this is widely considered the movie that nearly killed Disney animation for how expensive it was and how badly it bombed. And it took them 13 years to finally decide to even do a home video release of this movie. So um, it was one of those ones where I, when I had to think about it, I was sure that I had seen it as a kid, but in retrospect, I wasn't positive how that happened. I know we had the Disney Channel for a little while, but anyway, to at least give an idea of how the series is received, um, I went and looked at how the actual novel, The Black Cauldron, is classified on Goodreads' website, and we've kind of used that before because people, users, can identify what genre they think a book is. And so you had about 57% of people saying that it was fantasy, about 30% saying it was children's, and then you get 5% sci-fi fantasy, 4% adventure, 1.2% magic, 1.1% mythology, and then with a whopping 0.33% of people considered it to be horror as far as the original novel goes. That being said, uh, as I said earlier, that quote from Lloyd Alexander, he didn't really consider the movie to have much in relationship to his book series. So the sheer fact that his book isn't considered horror doesn't necessarily mean anything as far as the classification of the movie goes. Uh, but as far as meta tags go, I found as far as different various streaming sites and websites and that, that considered it about seven listed as animated, which that's obvious, six labeled it as family, five labeled it as adventure, three labeled it as fantasy, two labeled as kids movie, two labeled as action, one labeled it as dark fantasy, one as children's, and none labeled it as horror. And then another thing that we've kind of looked at in the past is Google search trends, uh, sometimes horror movies have a bump in October, and this one had no discernible bump at all from that. So at least as far as the way it was received, it didn't really seem like anyone was really classifying this as horror. But let's get into it. What did everyone think? Is this movie horror or not horror? 
Uh, for me, when I was a kid and I watched this, I remember this terrifying me because the horned god, like, he's no joke. He's kind of creepy. He's got the creepy skeleton hands. But overall, after watching it again as, as an adult, I can confidently say this is not horror. This is really just kind of your run-of-the-mill dark fantasy that I think happened a lot in the 80s. It's very D&D tinged. Like, it has that sort of sweeping epic sword in the stone thing going for it and it has a happy ending so definitely not horror yeah so for me i also think it's not horror and i struggled with it a bit though because like a lot of people myself included a lot of people that i've talked to have memories of this being really scary as a kid and i wondered if part of that was from some of the stuff you were talking about, Steve, where it took them forever to do a release. So it's like some people saw it, but then there was sort of this mystery around it that like nobody repeatedly saw it in their childhood. Um, but anyways, short answer, I don't, I don't think it's horror. Yeah, I also don't think it's horror. I never saw this as a kid, so I don't really even have any of that child fear nostalgia to like fuel it towards being horror for me we're probably going to talk about it but i think there were so many similarities with like the lord of the rings that to me it just felt like straight fantasy i did not see this as a child if i had maybe i'd have a different opinion but to me yes it's just high fantasy not horror yeah i think for me as well i I remember, I feel like, having seen it as a kid, it's possible I saw it in the theater. I thought also that maybe we had had some kind of storybook floating around for it, so I might be remembering that more than the movie, because my vague recollection from growing up is kind of of still images of it. So, yeah, it might have been a storybook, but I don't think that it's horror, and it's... There's some spots that veer close, but I think it's kind of tonally all over the place. And that's ultimately Disney didn't want it to be a horror film. And that Katzenberg final pass on it at least eliminated famously some of the more horrific elements that might have made it into that film, like people being melted by the gas from the Black Cauldron. So, yeah, I think it's not horror. I think they weren't attempting to release a horror film. I don't think the source material is horror. I think at best it maybe flirts with it a little bit like dark fantasy sometimes does. So I thought before we get into the meat of the film that it might be a good idea to explore at least the concept of children's horror a little bit because if this is horror that would be the category that it would go in. We talked about that a little bit with both Gremlins and Coraline, and so I thought at least one of the things that it might be worth discussing, and maybe seeing if everybody's even on the same page about this, um, but I guess one of the things we've said plenty of other times is that whether or not a movie is scary isn't the thing that makes it horror. It might be one of the least important metrics as far as whether something's horror. Do you agree with that? Uh, do you not? Is Why isn't scary enough to make something horror? Or is that enough to make something horror? Where does everybody weigh in on that since this is going to be a little bit different for children's horror? I think it needs to be a little bit scary in order for me to call it horror. Um, that doesn't mean that it has to be scary throughout the entire movie. But this didn't have the right um, collection of elements to make the magical Venn diagram that I've been talking about all season. 
There's certain components that need to overlap and a story does not need to have all of them to be horror, but they need to be present and they weren't in this movie. I would say that fantasy does tend to flirt with horror in a lot of ways because there's usually some sort of peril or creature or dark place, uh, monsters and demons and things like that. But it's just, I think the tone is usually what determines whether that's going to be horror or if it's just going to be suspense and action. And I think that this film was always looking at it from a suspense and action standpoint. There wasn't uh, anything that was happening to shock you. And I was watching it with my kids and my kids were like not phased at all by any of the things going on. It was more just following the action. So, yeah, I would say it it had scary elements, but it wasn't putting them in any kind of tone that would be a horror tone for me. I think, so while I agree that regular horror movies, um, the scariness factor isn't necessarily a, a great metric or what matters the most because, because it's so subjective. But I do think it matters. Well, okay. So it matters kind of what it makes you end up thinking about. I think like, mortality and it makes you think about fear whether you experience or not experience it or not and it makes you think about physical and psychological danger or pain or that kind of thing um i think children's horror is handles it a little bit differently i think with children's horror it does matter more if it is scary or scary to a child or at least that it left some sort of impact on you um and often like those impacts like kind of stick with you like kind of what we talked about at the beginning of the episode about just some of those random things from movies that like you know even as a an, an adult you still kind of think about those things that's scaring you and even with this movie like i remember as a child when i saw it and i probably only saw it the one time but like it did scare me and like i just my childhood brain logged it away as scary movie but I don't know, that's a little bit contrary because I did say that it's not horror, but but I think that's a factor with children's horror is that it does need to be scary. It needs to scare you. It needs to, your childhood brain needs to log it as that, whether or not you're thinking about the the details or the more finer points, I guess. I know your question was about children's horror but i'm kind of stuck on what matt said earlier talking about how horror and fantasy are intertwined a lot of the time and i kind of find it interesting how we're, we all classify this as fantasy not horror and we would probably classify most fantasy movies as also not horror but a lot of fantasy settings have like the like dark themes and motifs like in this movie there's a skeleton king and necromancy raising people from the dead which in other settings like zombie movies is horror but it's funny how we don't classify it as horror in a fantasy setting and i'm wondering why that is 
Is it because it's not the main focus of the movie? Personally, I think it has something to do with how the characters are able to fight back against those things in fantasy. Also, just aside from how it's presented, but like it's a little bit it feels different when there's zombies and a wizard can fight them or a magic sword or spells um, versus like just zombies attacking random folks. You know what I mean? This is just my take on it. So then how do you classify Army of Darkness now? Because I still think Army of Darkness is... Well, I think I said it was horror. Yeah, it's horror comedy for sure. I definitely went action-adventure on that one, but I don't know. Again, you know, everyone's opinion's valid, so it's not like mine carries any more weight. I guess at least to speak to some of the things that you've mentioned, I think that I would definitely describe this movie as dark fantasy. And uh, I think at least when we talked about dark fantasy before, it was kind of the idea of basically having fantasy story, but it's slightly different than the normal run of the mill fantasy because you have some horror tropes and elements that are mixed in there. It's just not the prevailing influence as far as the story goes overall. And I think that I agree with what Matt said about adding some other magical elements in it can kind of change it up a little bit because for instance, most zombie movies, there is no cure all that they come across, right? There's no nothing that you can find where you can kind of hit the reset button and take all of them out. But I think the thing that makes zombies or zombie-like creatures different in fantasy is that you get that kind of like Star Wars, Phantom Menace, or Avengers, if you will, or Age of, you know, Avengers Age of Ultron, even sort of element where you basically get to, there's a reset button somewhere magically where if you can hit it, all of them will die. And I guess not to say that that's the essential element, but at least that's, I think, part of the thing that makes me look at this movie and say, yeah. There is an army of the dead, but there's also that big bet, you know, that big red reset button that can be hit at any time to nuke them all out of existence. That it doesn't matter how far they get or where they're going. So long as you can hit that button, you can take them all out. And I think maybe that gives it a little bit of a different feel. Yeah, there's magic that you can fight them, but there's very specific magic you could, you can use to fight these off. So I think that's maybe at least part of what came into play for this for me to be able to classify it as dark fantasy and not horror. Yeah. In general, what makes children's horror different than normal horror? Or, you know, what makes dark fantasy different than horror? I know we talked about that a little bit with Pan's Labyrinth as well, but I guess if you feel like you have any other thoughts on it that you've kind of evolved since then, uh, go for it in either direction. Obviously, the first number one rule of children's horror is that the protagonists have to be children also. I don't think you could have a children's horror where the protagonists are adults. You know what I mean? No, I think that's a fair assessment. That's probably, I could see that as a hard rule amongst children's horror, that your children have to be at least some of the protagonists, or at least the main protagonists. Yeah, that makes sense. I also think children's horror is kind of supposed to, in the end, um, 
reinforce a rule, like an everyday life rule, like whether it's go to bed on time, listen to your parents, you know, don't do blood sacrifice rituals in the backyard under the full moon, what have you. Don't feed the gremlins. Right? Thank you. (laughs) I think that there's like this caveat with children's horror, like tisk tisk, if you're naughty, look what happens, like Krampus, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I made myself just for my own purposes, a sort of small list of rules that I feel like apply to uh, children's horror. And like, I guess, first off, like I my in my head like i think children's horror is sort of the younger brother of comedy horror um so it i think can play by some other rules um but uh so some of my other rules were like uh many of the tropes from regular horror are there but they're turned uh like they're not as intense or they're twisted in some way i think like it does matter. I already talked about this, but I think it does matter if it scares you. I think there's more often a way to overcome the antagonist than there is in regular horror. There's always a way out or a way to, you know, make it, make everything okay. And I think, I think this goes along with what you were saying, Brianna. Like, I think more often there's a heavier hand on the like good versus evil angle, or like, like you said, like, learning or doing the right thing or a life lesson or that's something along those lines and i think it has like a similar tension arc to horror comedy like there is tension and it builds tension but it's often diffused with comedy and uh, another one is there are consequences but the most severe consequences are almost always directed at the villain so anyways those are a few of the kind of random rules that i thought of for when I'm classifying it, I guess. I would say in addition that almost all children's horror has like a happy ending of some sort. There can be death, uh, but I think that most times there's some kind of happy ending. Okay, well, yeah. we got to get a comment from Brianna on that one. <laughs> oh, no, you know how I feel about this. Even for children's horror? So tell me which children's horror has an unhappy ending. The one that I'm going to write and it will be amazing and it will rule them all. (laughs) No, I do think, I do think it is fair to say that, um, I, I would have to make an exception with the happy ending rule with children's horror specifically because of the audience that it's written for. We don't want to completely traumatize them. We want them to grow up and graduate to like real horror. So, you know, we have to, we have to keep this legacy going. Okay, so I did want to visit one of the rules there just that Joe had to say. Do the rest of you feel like whether or not it's scary does play a bigger factor in classifying it as children's horror as opposed to standard horror? Yes. I'm going to also say yes. Well, I don't really have a reason. I just feel that children don't really have a concept of horror outside of it being scary so it's gotta be scary if you're a really intelligent child listening to this i'm sorry if i offended you (laughs) but also why are you listening it says explicit on everywhere that this is broadcast so what are you doing here that's fine it's fine go ahead (laughs) maybe you're not that intelligent (laughs) we're just a podcast we're not the cops (laughs) 
I guess that's one of those things that I still am kind of dwelling about and thinking about a little bit because I think part of the reason that I don't like scary as a factor in determining regular run-of-the-mill horror is because of how subjective it is. You know, if one person might be terrified by The Exorcist, another person might find it funny, a, a.k.a. Beetlejuice. But, um, you know, it's if you don't find it scary at all, I don't like the idea that that suddenly makes it not horror anymore. I know we talked about in the Rocky Horror Picture Show if something that is horror can stop being horror over time, but I think that ends up being a subjective thing too. Um, I know that it is one of those things where society dictates sort of what tropes are part of horror and which ones are not. So I know that that will change over time as far as what we consider to be horror and what we don't consider to be horror. But I think just the idea that uh, it can change too with your age a little bit, I, I don't know. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying I don't like it. <laughs> and in like pure horror and pure like adult higher concept horror, I hundred percent agree. I, I just think that there's a, a slight different rule for a children's horror movie. Um, and that I, uh, that I do think it needs to scare you a little bit or, and maybe scare is the wrong word for it. But like, I guess when I'm looking back at my childhood and like movies that, that scared me or that I would maybe, I mean, when we were going into the black cauldron, like I, before having, I mean, I haven't seen it in decades probably, uh, but before having watched it again, I was like, oh yeah, that's probably horror because it scared the crap out of me as a kid. And like, I've heard that echoed a lot, but, um, so, and then I, I think it's just has to do with the crowd that it's played to. Um, and you know, obviously none of us felt this is scary. Um, and I absolutely agree with your assessment of like scary being too subjective to be a good metric. Uh, but I just, I guess I just feel like it, there's, there's, it matters more for a kid's movie. And I'm not even saying that, like, I'm not saying that it has to scare you. I'm just saying that it matters more. And that's fair. And like I said, I'm, I'm not even saying, I'm not even sitting here saying that you're wrong. I think that there is something to that. I just, I just don't like how subjective it is, but I don't know how to combat it. And I think, like you say, I think that that is, I think there is something to that. I don't know. And the other thing I was thinking about with children's horror too is just this whole idea of implications versus visuals. Uh, I wrote in the note for myself, I guess, that's one of the things that stands out to me is the difference between horror and children's horror is that children's horror likes to imply things that horror normally shows. At least that's, I guess, one of the things I feel like I've found. So, you know, they might imply someone's death or something like that, but they'll have it in silhouette or it'll be something you don't necessarily have to see. And we'll talk about it in a second with the way that this movie deals with death, but I think that's probably part of it too. If you're finding your movie heavily implying the sort of thing that usually happens in horror movies, then maybe that's a good indicator that you're watching children's horror as well. Yeah, I think that's a good one. I, I guess just thinking about it along with um, like Coraline, for example, we all decided that that was children's horror or maybe just straight horror, um, depending on your feelings about it. But I think it does lean heavier on some of the implications of what's going on without necessarily showing it. 
I think another thing too, so Joe and I were talking about this a little bit as well. I'm kind of curious to see what everybody else's take on it is too, is that you think about some of the other Disney movies that are out there. And of course, I'm sure this is true with other animated movies. It's just since this happens to be Disney, it's easy to talk about those as well, that you do occasionally get these really horrific concepts in some of these movies that Disney's making that no one's thinking about as horror is at all. And one of the ones that at least comes to mind for me on that is The Little Mermaid, because you've got this weird body horror angle where she's like, oh, people are coming in for help and they're being cursed and they're being turned into these little like weird algae things stuck on the floor for eternity as this thing that remembers what it was and can't escape. Like that's, it's worse than honestly if she had just killed them. But then I don't think I, you could find anybody that would think of The Little Mermaid as a horror movie. But what's happening there, in my mind, is almost worse than anything that actually happens in The Black Cauldron. Yeah, that's pretty creepy. So yeah, I, I don't know. I was just kind of curious other people's take on that. If there's other moments like that you can think of from other Disney movies. Things that seem horrific, but then just... They're part of movies that no one's thinking of as horror. I know Joe probably had some examples, and I know we talked about this almost a little bit in Coraline, but didn't really get into it as much. Yeah, I think there's a lot there with a lot of those movies. Like you said, there's a lot of dark concepts in those movies. And like I don't think they're all children's horror, but I think a lot of like Disney and Pixar and those types of movies with a little bit of a bend. Um, could lean that way. Um, and like, I guess a few, I mean, there's tons of them. And I think we, we talked about that a little bit already earlier in the episode where you said Brianna, or I, I think it was you who said Brianna, like you want to like put a little bit of that scare in there. You know, you want to scare the kid a little, but like a few that came to mind were like the Swan princess where you have like the evil sorcerer turns into an animal. Like there's kind of like almost body horror there. And like Anastasia, Rasputin's creepy, just super creepy. Uh, a big one for me was Secret of Nim. There's tons of stuff in that one. Uh, you know, we've already we've talked about Toy Story, Brave, Ratatouille, like Tangled. Even looking back at some of the old ones like Snow White, it, there's a lot of like scary stuff in that. And Sleeping Beauty, like a big giant scary dragon and a bunch of gremlin-y henchmen and stuff. Anyways. I'm talking a lot about it, but yeah, I think a lot of those, a lot of those children's movies have so many dark concepts, but, and with a little twist, a little push off the edge, like they could maybe be, um, children's horror. They're not, I, I'm not arguing that they are, but I think they have a lot of elements there. Yeah, I can think of a few also. I just... I guess it depends on how much screen time those horror elements get. Because, like, dark movies, I, I always think of, like, uh, in terms of dark themes, I always think of Alice in Wonderland and Hunchback of Notre Dame. Those are pretty dark movies for a children's movie. Especially Hunchback yeah, of Notre sure. Dame. He was trying to kill her because he wanted to bang her. I mean, that's pretty, uh, it's pretty elevated for a children's movie. <laughs> I just always think of Pinocchio because that one always always scared me as a kid. (laughs) That is that. Yeah. Agreed. 
Well, a lot of the Grimm's fairy tales were really, really dark. Like, they weren't technically horror, but they dealt with some pretty heavy horror themes. There was almost always some kind of body horror, whether it was being transformed mm-hmm. into an animal, whether it was just, like, the imminent threat of imprisonment and or doom. Like, it, I don't know. Those are really large, dark themes for me, but I would not necessarily classify any of those as horror. I just think it just came from a time-honored tradition of writing bedtime stories that are going to scar your children or something. I don't know who came (laughs) up with that, but that's what it looks like to me. Well, I think there's something there that is a connective tissue between children's stories and horror. If you think about the idea of what do urban legends normally do and what do grim fairy tales usually do, like you had already hit on, Brianna, is the idea of trying to teach a moral lesson to your kids. So, you know, you're sitting there and you're saying, at least, well, I guess my mind's going back to the Little Mermaid again. You know, you're saying, hey, you need to listen to your parents or at least talk with your parents about issues you're having because if you don't, then you might go to the sea witch and you might get turned into a little algae thing and get yourself into real trouble. So there's the moral lesson, right? And a lot of those Grimm's fairy tales had that same kind of like, morality tale sort of thing and then what did slasher movies do in the 80s you know you're sitting there and doing the same thing where they're codifying hey did you drink did you do drugs did you have premarital sex did you shirk your responsibilities then that's going to lead to death so it's like you're getting the same core concept but in one direction you're taking it just enough to scare your kids to say hey if you do what's right nothing will hurt you and you get your happy ending and in the slasher movie you're giving that message, but you're never overtly getting at that message. And of course, things have changed since you get, you know, more meta slashers that are playing with those concepts and taking in other directions. But those early proto slashers and slashers there in the 70s and 80s were hitting that morality tale up just as hard. So it's, yeah, I guess just to say, I'm laboring the point now, but anyway, that there's that same DNA almost. So there's kind of that connection there. But I also think the main difference between the two, and I do see the connection that you've made, Steve, the difference is that horror isn't going to tell you that you can change your fate. Horror is going to tell you, hey, man, this is the way it is. You can't escape. I think it's the it's the ability or the perceived ability to change your fate that turns horror, for kids' horror anyway, it takes children's horror away from, hey, it's just a scary um, fairy tale story. Yeah, I think that a lot of it comes down to the presentation in the end. And I do think that that is definitely something that makes... Once your situation is a lot more survivable, it sets up a different kind of tone. Once you can fight back, then it starts moving you into other genres. Once you can really fight back, once it's worthwhile to fight back. I was kind of thinking about some of the stuff you were saying, Steve, uh, about just sort of the connective tissue between early slashers and just grim fairy tales and that kind of thing. And I think maybe there's a little bit of a, and the, just the idea of like, of what you just said about if you can fight back, then it changes the tone. And I think in a lot of those early slashers, you, the idea was run. Like you, the idea wasn't like, if you tried, if you stood your ground, if you tried to fight, or if you just gotten your, you got yourself into a position where you couldn't run, then you were just done for um, so I think that is, uh, I think that does matter because, and it does just shift the tone when you actually can fight back. 
And then I guess talking about the tone, so we'll actually get more into the meat of this specific film. Obviously, there's a lot of conflict behind the scenes over what the tone of this movie ought to have been, an argument over what that tone should have been. Uh, so it's a little bit hard, to, at least, to look at the intent to try and figure out what the tone, what they were trying to go for, because there's just too many, I don't know, too many hands in it. But what did you feel like the overall tone of this movie was, and what most defined that for you? Mm, I think it was like a grand adventure friendship kind of tone for me. Because yes, there were dark moments, but it always came back to like um, the camaraderie of the the group who was going through the adventure. I think another uh, a thing that goes along with that for me was like just Tarn's attitude about stuff and where he was just like, I want to go out and fight. I want to be a big bad warrior. Like that's my life's ambition. And he finally gets it and finds out that it's not all he dreamed of, I guess. But I, I think that helped set the tone for me on it a bit too, that it was more of just an adventure, an adventure rather than much else. Certainly the scary elements were there, but it just, they just weren't big enough. Also, no one actually died. I mean, we had Gurgi, and that was really sad, but they brought him back, so it was okay. Yeah, that's kind of, uh, with Gurgi too, that kind of adds to a little bit of the tone of it being children's horror, because it's there was, there was this death, but there isn't actually a death, so there's actually no lasting consequences. So it's kind of, uh an element to me that shifts the tone into that more of a fantasy, maybe children's horror, if you were going to call it horror, but there's, there aren't actually like lasting consequences for the main characters. Did anyone think that Gurgi's death was going to be permanent? I did. Heck no, it's Disney. I, I didn't know what to expect because I never saw it as a kid. I really thought he was gone forever. I thought it was like, I don't know if that would have changed it for me, you know? I definitely would have thought it was a lot darker. It maybe wouldn't have tipped the scales for me of it being children's horror, but it certainly would have made it more dark if there was a last a, a death that was like a finalized death. This is definitely for sure dead. It would have been horror if Gurgi had stayed dead and Taran lost his freaking mind and used the Black Cauldron and basically became the Horned King again. So, like, the whole destiny was fulfilled and the circle was closed. Then it could have been horror. I guess another thing that occurred to me along with all of this is uh, just... So, I guess at least for me, I had written, you know, the Horned King's death... We watched the Black Cauldron literally peeling his flesh from his bones. That was awesome. Of course. Uh, but then we just see Gurgi dive into the Black Cauldron and die. But uh, So we basically have two instances where we see the Black Cauldron kill someone, and the only one that occurs where someone's actually outside of the cauldron while they're doing it is the Horned King's death. So at least do you feel like the implication is that probably the same thing happened to Gurgi when he was inside the cauldron we're just not seeing it because it was off screen um or do you think that's not what was happening to him does that change how you feel about the scene or the movie 
I don't think that's what would have happened to Gurgi because I think the implication was Gurgi's sacrifice was pure. He was giving up his life for the for the betterment of the whole world, whereas the Horned King was simply getting his comeuppance, and therefore his demise was like painful and gruesome, etc., etc. I think it goes back to reinforcing that thing with. Um, like child-centric media where you're like well if you do the right thing good things happen to you and if you do the wrong thing bad things happen to you which also kids by the way is not at all how the world works i hate to ruin it for you that's so true but at least as far as the black cauldron goes i'm we're under no impression that it is an entity that cares about morality that it is concerned with how gurgi sacrificed himself for the greater good to stop it because ultimately it's him stopping the thing that's killing him so maybe in terms of the movie and the creators maybe that's what they want us to take from it but is there any indication that the cauldron itself would react differently to him no, because I think it's one of those mind over matter things. Like I said, he's doing this whole self-sacrifice for the good of everyone else. And Gurgi was diving, swan diving peacefully into that, you know, liquid hot magma or whatever. I would like to believe that Gurgi went peacefully. But the Black Cauldron, isn't, isn't it like an enslaved demon or something? So, That's what it was I saying, yeah would be <laughs> Gurgi is cute and fuzzy I don't want to think about him being in pain Gurgi is a free boy now <laughs> he falls into the into the cauldron and does the whole Terminator 2 thing and like sticks his yep. thumb up out yep. and you know slowly sinks into the and he's like <laughs> crunchies and munchies bro crunchies and munchies I was uh, back I didn't quite answer your previous question about him though but I think before I had rewatched this as an adult, I remember that Gurgi died, but I didn't remember that he came back to life. Like, what stuck with me was that he died. And I think that was part of why I thought of it as horror before rewatching it. Did anyone feel like any other characters were at risk? I guess, Brianna, you kind of already said because it's a Disney movie, not so much. Or did, did that change for you at all for any other characters? Um, I had a weird deja vu moment rewatching it as an adult where um, the dragons are after them and they get, um, Hen, what's her name? Hen, Henpen? Henwen? What the heck is Henwen. her name? The pig. Henwen. Okay. So when the dragon, when the dragon is getting Henwen, like, and we see her being kind of like slammed into the ground and drug across the ground and the claws are digging in, but there's no blood like that freaked me out because I think I was scared of it as a kid, because I was scared for the pig. <laughs> I had very big concerns for this magical pig as a child. I was invested. Well, and who knows how well-trained those dragons are. Maybe they'll just eat her. Exactly. little bacon snack. You know, somebody had put some obviously, like, press-on eyelashes on that pig, too, because eyelashes for <laughs> days on that overly charming-looking yeah, totally. pig. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's esoteric magic. I guess the other thing that came to mind as far as tension goes, the movie doesn't really establish much in the way of civilization. And we know that Dalbin, he's back on the farm. Henwin's alive somewhere and there's the fair folk and that they exist. 
uh, but none of them are really shown during the climax. So you've got the Horn King. He's, in theory, threatening all of existence, but we aren't shown the reality of that. Um, so I guess, did you feel like there were real stakes in the film if our hero is lost? I mean, again, it's a Disney movie, so probably they weren't going to lose. Um, would it have helped it feel more like horror if we'd shown you know, the cut back to some sort of kingdom or some sort of village where people were in trouble from this approaching army of the dead. I think, yes. I think if there were townsfolk that we could have felt some kind of risk for, that that might have made it a little bit more horror for me. I don't think so, because I'm like going back to the similarities between this and Lord of the Rings and if you take like the Hobbit is the first example that comes to mind is knowing that all those people are in Dale and could be attacked by the, or I don't know what the name of the town is, but it could be attacked by Smaug. doesn't really make it horror to me still. Did you end up watching this with your kids, Matt? I did. Yeah. How was it for them? Did they get scared at parts? Did they feel tense at some of these scenes where they worried that Gurgi was dead you know like how did they seem to be reacting to all of it no they they were just they were just big chilling didn't seem uh to be scared or worried or anything like that i know that my son definitely was more interested especially in the parts with like the horned king on screen so but I, neither of them seemed scared I also want to point out, though, that I think this is the only animated movie I've seen designed for kids where one of the characters actually bleeds. Did anyone else notice that? It was the blood that dripped down on the cauldron during uh, when he was like, putting the skeleton into it. Is that what you're thinking of, or am I missing? No. Uh, when when Little Piggy gets snatched up by the dragons and the, the kid can't save her, he's got a, like, a bloody lip in one of the frames. Oh yeah, I do remember thinking that was that was a like the odd. protagonist gets visibly injured in an animated film. That was new for me. Yeah, and it's not just like some dirt scuffed on their cheek or something right. like that. It's not like oh darn, my knees got a little bit muddy. No, no, no. Bro had like a fat lip for sure. Well, I guess thinking about that too, in terms of the film in general, how did the animation style affect kind of the tone of the film for you? And that goes into design of characters too, like how the Horned King was represented, how the Army of the Dead was represented. Yeah, how did how did the animation style play into that tone for everybody? I thought it was creepy. I thought the the Horned King's mystical, magical, like day glow green and blue mist was pretty creepy. That freaked me out as a kid as well. His little pyrotechnics that he does with his grand entrance into the tavern, you know, because everybody has to come in with an entrance. He's Horned King. He didn't become the Horned King by just walking in casually. That's right. He does it with panache, his world domination and evil necromancy. Did <laughs> you see that cape? Jeez. Got that at Nordstrom. I think that the those animation styles, especially the ones you mentioned, do did play a part in, for sure, making it like kind of dark fantasy, and that like our our villain is kind of something else. It's not human. It's set apart. Fun fact uh, that I was reading about this movie before uh, anything before anything else came up about it or doing the episode was. 
Uh, it was one of the first ones where they actually were using computer-generated graphics for the movie. And there was like a little bit of... Uh, I know my brother already said there was kind of some debates between the old guard and the new guard at Disney about how to, how it should be made. Uh, so I was watching this YouTube video about how Disney reused different animations over the years. And uh, there was even they interviewed one of the animators and he talked about how he thought it was silly, how they would go back to old footage and pull stuff out. And he thought it would have been easier to just do the animation from the beginning, from scratch. So you can kind of see that there was probably like some anim some animosity there too, or evidence of it. So yeah, that's kind of an interesting thing with the animation that there was the it was the one was one of the first times they were using computer generated images, and there are some scenes that were famously reused in this movie from other Disney movies too. And the way they did the computer animation and this was really interesting because it was like the most analog way ever. So the way that they had used it too was for the little orb that the princess has and sometimes doesn't have because it just shows up and disappears without any reason in the plot. The not Navi, yeah. But like, yeah, they, they animated that on a computer and then they'd print it out and then they would basically draw over it frame by frame. So it's like the most analog possible way of including computer animation in a Disney film. And then I guess the the smoke and everything coming out of there, that was actually out of the cauldron itself. That was something that they'd actually filmed and then also superimposed over top of it. So that is real smoke is why that feels different, moves different than anything else in the film as well. That is so interesting. I didn't notice it. <laughs> Now I feel like I have to go watch it again. I did remember, like, I, that's interesting that you said that. Like, I remember kind of, like, thinking, oh, the smoke looks pretty cool. Um, but I guess maybe now I know why. And then as far as, uh, I guess I'm just curious, too, are there any other, like, what elements of horror did stand out to everybody? Probably it's all coming from the same area, but uh, if there are things that, had you second guessing what genre you felt like this was? What were those things? There were a lot of really dark frames and dark scenes where you did have like the creepy smoke and the shadows and the random fire bursts. That was creepy. I felt like they really made an emphasis on the boniness of bad guys' hands. Like they did a lot of close ups on like the clawed fingers of the horned king. Um, the green sludge and the slime that dripped off of the the army of the dead. Those were things that kind of made me look at it and go, well, there's a whole bunch of horror elements. But again, ultimately, ultimately at the end, it was not enough to tip the scale for me. I think one of the biggest concepts in the movie for me that had me at least like thinking a little harder about whether it was horror horror or not was just the the concept of what the horned king was trying to do um, and the way he, in which he was doing it. He was, I, I don't think they really hit the point hard, but it feels to me like he was just like this warmongering king who was out like creating all these small wars throughout the countryside. And then the only reason for that was in order for him to gather corpses. Uh, and then he 
you know, had his men go out and gather the corpses from these battles and these armies and bring them back and stick them in his basement, um, just waiting for him to get the black cauldron. Um, and just thinking about like what that basement of corpses must have been like or smelled like, or, <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't know that they, they don't hit the whole, the point or the implications of that point hard enough for me to end up feeling like it's horror. But I think that was maybe the biggest thing for me. It's another one of those cases, right. Of, um, implying heavily things that in a horror movie you'd actually end up seeing. Um, I, again, I don't think that this ends up even necessarily being children's horror, but yeah, if you stop and think for a moment about like, Oh yeah, they're dragging all of these corpses back here, uh, starting all of these wars. So he can just have this, just this corpse army just sitting there and who knows how many years they were just sitting on basically this like fetid rotting crypt at the bottom of this castle for i don't know maybe decades right right because they're bringing in fresh bodies but there's also like clearly just skeletons lying around too so yeah you probably have yeah probably decades of just like various levels of decaying bodies can we rewrite this as a horror movie now? Because I would pay to see that. I would I would pay to see a true horror dark reimagining of this. It sounds badass. Like, this is the most <laughs> metal thing ever. Like, please, someone write it. Make it happen. I feel like a live action of this movie would kind of be sick. Like, it'd be so cool. Has that been done Right? Yet? I don't know. But they better not fuck it up the way they did the Hellraiser reboot. I'm just saying. <laughs> I mean, it's basically Army of Darkness. Army of Darkness is the live-action remake of this story. I guess that's fair. Yeah, it's just substitute Necronomicon for Black Cauldron. Yeah, there's a lot there. (laughs) So I do think that that's at least a big part of it, too. Not the Army of Darkness relationship, if there was one that exists. But anyway, just the... There is this motif, this macabre motif throughout it with the Horn King's world and, and death being this overt factor. And we talk about horror usually having some kind of taboo factor. And I think that's at least the thing is this one, maybe more than any other Disney movie that at least I can think of, deals directly with death, the results of death, seeing lots of corpses. And of course, there's that scene they famously edited out of this in the Katzenberg edit where, uh, you know, the dead overcome part of the still living army of the horned king and the guy's flesh is dissolved off you can find frames of it um but at least you know that was cut out but yeah it's death is such a huge factor in this it's kind of weird to look at it and see that aspect of it and then still come away feeling like yeah i dark fantasy sure but horror no i don't know so i guess does the death side of it was that something that almost kind of swayed it over for people? If you were only shown, say, like the third act of this film, would that make a difference? I'm not. I don't know for sure if it would make a difference for me or not. I'm just trying to. I'm just thinking through that a little bit. I think maybe if I only saw this the the scene where the army of the dead was sort of raised i think i would probably think it was a scary slash horror movie just from that but again you have to look at the film as a whole and apply the context of the story and the context of the story is about defeating that and they do it's not about the 
I don't I never felt afraid that the Horned King was actually going to fulfill his campaign. I don't know. I think maybe if like act three, if we just saw act three, like you said, Steve, but it was like a little longer and more detailed and like it took a while, it took longer for them to actually get the black cauldron shut down. And we did see some of the effects of what was happening uh, in the village, in this village that they didn't actually show us in any of any village that they didn't show us. They didn't show us any of the effects of that. They just saw, showed us skeletons rising and walking out the castle like I, th- I think for it to matter to me i would have needed to actually see that see them going and slaughtering people or something like that and then of course i guess we touched on it at least a little bit but um the horn king's death is fairly i know it's gruesome for a disney movie i guess we'll say um, I think at least for me and thinking about it, the big thing is he's already kind of skeletal in appearance and he's the bad guy. And so while it might be a little bit grim, I think it would be easy, at least as a kid, to see something like that and just being like, you know, evil's getting what they deserve rather than have it be something that would freak you out at all. I don't know if anybody else feels different, but I guess that's how I took it. It's like, yeah, it's this gruesome moment, but it's because of who it's happening to and because of how they're already designed, it's not that impactful. As I say, I don't think it really has any more impact than like, say your wicked witch melting or, you know, stuff like that. It, it wasn't uh, meant to be like body horror. I don't think it was more just like, I don't know. I guess it felt tame because of what's happening to, like you said, yeah, and like because of the character design, like when it starts peeling his flesh off, I remember being like, "Oh, I guess he has flesh." Like <laughs> he's not just this like I don't know horned golemy creature. And like we previously said, like because he's sort of something else and set apart from what people are. Like I mean, I didn't even know what might have happened, like or that it he did have flesh to peel off. So in my head, I'm thinking of like that moment in the matrix when you see it for the first time and the squid creatures go and they peel a opening in the hall. And then you're like, Oh, water's not pouring in right. The outside's not water. And so it's sort of almost the same thing with the horned King where it's like, Oh, I guess that is skin as it turns out. Didn't I wasn't thinking it was skin. Okay, cool. Yeah, right. Exactly. I think that's everything, at least, that I had on it. I guess what other thoughts did anybody have on this or other things they wanted to make sure to make mention of? Uh, I think that's pretty much it for me. Uh, I wanted I talked about the reusing of the animations and then just to mention that I felt like the themes of it were very, very similar to Lord of the Rings. Um, a lot of things in common with that and then as we said too it's like army of darkness a lot of things in common with that too uh so yeah definitely borrowed from some other popular fantasy slash horror things out there or at least was inspired from them or other things inspired by it (laughs) um i guess if there's no final thoughts then i will go ahead and close out the episode thanks for joining us on another episode of is it horror 
so yeah, as I said earlier, this brings to an end the uh, Joe Ruins Your Childhood week, or at least we've got one more one more movie to go on that front, and then uh, we'll have kind of a two-day encore next week because we've got you know the 30th and the 31st, um, which I will announce what those movies are, so stay tuned on the Instagram and on the Twitter page for that. Uh, but then the next episode is going to release on November 11th. And just a reminder on that, we have been going weekly during the month of October, but we're going to go back to our bi-weekly schedule after this. And so the next one, it will be on November 11th. Uh, it's, no, it's a little bit late, but we're going to be talking about David Green's Halloween trilogy and kind of reviewing that since that's all come to an end by the time you're hearing this and kind of talk about how we felt like that all came together and how the final movie tied things up or didn't. Uh, we'll see either way. And uh, hopefully you'll join us back here for that. In the meantime, I have been Steve. And I've been Brianna. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. And I am Munchings and Crunchings Mitts. <laughs> munchings and Crunchings. They're in there somewhere. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> I too am food motivated, Kirgi. Thanks for joining us at Is It Horror? We post new episodes every other Friday. Think we didn't give this movie a fair shake? Think we missed something? Do you have a suggestion for future episodes? Or did you just want to say hi? If so, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at IsItHorrorPod, or you can email us at IsItHorrorPodcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, stay safe and keep asking yourself, Is It Horror?